In episode 520 with Danielle Laporte, we talk all about being your own guru, how to heal our nervous systems, which so many of us need right now, raising children who love themselves, which is very important. We're also talking about her journey with heavy metal toxicity and mold toxicity, how to be more loving to yourself and others, plus so much more. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, Open Wide, Comparisonitis, and Time Magic. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Hey, beautiful, and welcome back to the show. I am so excited about this conversation. It's a really beautiful and deep conversation with the incredible Danielle Laporte. She is back for the second time, and I am so excited for you guys to hear it. And for those of you that have never heard of Danielle, she is a member of Oprah's Super Soul 100. She is an author and producer of dozens of meditation kits and online programs for spiritual support. She is the creator of Heart-Centered Membership and the Heart-Centered Leadership Program with 400 plus leaders in 30 countries, hosting conversation circles, retreats, and workshops in all kinds of communities and businesses. She has a popular podcast called With Love Danielle, which is often ranked in iTunes top 10 for wellness. Most of her offerings are a pay-what-you-choose basis, which is pretty amazing. And her website, which has millions of views each month, is named one of the top 100 websites for women by Forbes, which is incredible. And for everything that we mention in today's conversation, you can check out in the show notes, and that's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 520. And now, without further ado, let's bring on the incredible Danielle Laporte. beautiful Danielle. Welcome back to the show. This is your second time here. You were actually episode eight. We are now in the 500s. You were episode eight, Sex and Success with Danielle Laporte. And I asked you this way back then, so I would love to hear what your answer is today. What did you have for breakfast this morning? I thought it was going to be like a sex-related question. <laughs> so much has happened since episode eight. You had a, somebody had sex because you had a baby. <laughs> what did I have for breakfast today? I had rooibos tea and a tangerine. Lovely. Beautiful. Beautiful. And you're right. So much has happened since you were last on the show. Hundreds of episodes have happened. So can you catch us up. Let's start with a flashback. Your book, The Desire Map, was published in 2014, nearly 10 years ago, but it's still one of the most profound life planning systems that I've ever encountered. Now, at the time, the idea of asking yourself, how do I want to feel to guide your goal setting process was absolutely revolutionary. 
Now your system has become so recognized and so popular in the personal development space that it's pretty much an accepted pillar of how people approach life planning and goal setting, which is just amazing, babe. That's so amazing. But for you, there's been such an evolution. Over recent years, a new question emerged. Instead of asking, how do I want to feel? You started asking, what do I want to embody. Can you tell us how that shift came about and why this new question is so powerful? Yeah, the revelation was, you know, feelings aren't all that. That me feeling fulfilled and close to source and useful and loved and loving actually had nothing to do or very little to do with being in a good mood feeling the things we all want to feel. I want to feel happy. I want to feel healthy and joyful and free and all those things. But I could feel none of those things and I could still be a loving person and I could still feel the love from somebody else. And I started to do some more just spiritual seeking and research into mysticism and the chakra system and where does the subconscious self live? And the general conclusion is that feelings come from the lower chakra system. They come from the emotional body. They come from the unconscious self. This is what's really important. So everybody's just like, take a pause and try and wrap your head around this. Your feelings actually come from the basement of your psyche, the stuff you're not aware of, the stuff you're not conscious of. They come from like the darker place in us. Dark, not meaning negative, heavy, but just unseen. There's lots that comes along with that consideration that probably means that most emotions that we experience come from some kind of past association. Like one of the questions I ask in How to Be Loving is, think about one of the strongest emotions we can feel, a so-called negative one, which is anger. And I think that most of us are taught how to be angry. We are raised to think, oh, that person disappointed us, therefore your default reaction is anger. And this is what anger looks like. This is what anger looks like in our house, in the classroom, all these things. It's like there's so much preconditioning in terms of situations that happen and how we think we're supposed to respond. We're actually, our our responses are programmed for the most part. And I'm not interested in living from that unconscious part of myself. I want to know what's in the basement for sure, but I want to have in the moment, ideally loving reactions, responses, I should say. Yeah. It becomes so heightened when you have children, just all of those programs, you know, just having my daughter, I'm like, oh, oh, there's an old program. Oh, that's an old conditioning. Like it's put in front of you so much when you have children. I feel like having children is personal development on steroids. I was just saying the other day to somebody about parenting that, you know, you could go in an, into a monastery. <laughs> you do the hard work and meditate like eight, 12 hours a day, have a begging bowl and reach enlightenment. Or you could have some kids and try and love them unconditionally because it's going to be the same kind of challenge. 
and beauty and like all the things. Absolutely, babe. Absolutely. You said in the book, and I love the book, it's so beautiful. Thank you for writing it. These last few years have been crazy and you almost walked away from your creative career to grow potatoes and disappear. What? Like, I'm so glad you didn't, for one, but this whole Instagram world, I get it, you know, to just kind of go, I just want to grow potatoes. I want to grow vegetables. You know, for me, we have a beautiful vegetable garden here and I work in the morning periods and and when my beautiful daughter is with our nanny right now as I'm recording this, and then it's my time with her after this. And we go for a walk around our garden. And yesterday we had our basket and we had our scissors and we were cutting spinach off the things. And I literally had this moment that I had dreamt of this moment for so many years before she was here. It took us 18 months to conceive her, 18 really long, challenging, heartbreaking months. And I had this moment of like, I have dreamt of cutting spinach out of my own organic veggie garden with my daughter for so many years and I was living it and I was just like, I am so content in this moment. And I'm like, I don't want to be on my phone. I don't want to be, you know, and then there was a moment where I was like, oh, I should be capturing this for Instagram. And then I was like, my phone was in the house and I didn't want to go and grab my phone and ruin the moment with that. So I get it. Growing potatoes and disappearing. It's a sexy thought. Tell me what happened. It was kind of a regular thought for me. It comes up every couple of years where I feel, do I need to do this? It's not, why do I do this? It's, do I need to do this to feel useful and close to life source? Is there some other way that would have me serve God more directly, more, I don't know, holy, holistically, spiritually, all those things. And I always come back to, no, (laughs) but it's really great consideration. It's like, yeah, I really, like really seriously consider I could sell a few things and downsize even more than I have, like, which has been very drastic over the last couple of years. And I could shave my head and go live somewhere else. And, you know, I have a kid and I still, he's more like my roommate now. And then I think I'm wired for this. You know, I came across a beautiful concept while I was writing How to Be Loving, which is called Swadharma. So lots of us know about Dharma, which is, you know, very simply, like that's your life path. It's what you're meant to do. This concept of Swadharma is like Dharma on healthy steroids, which is only you can walk this spiritual path. So we could all say, I'm on the spiritual path. I'm on the partner path. I'm on the parenting path. All the different choices, you know? But I can only do it in the way that I can do it. Curvy and gentle and boisterous or like whatever your thing is. And I just thought, you know, I've got this design, which is I'm designed to communicate. I'm designed for partnership. I'm designed for parenthood. I'm made to write. I'm going to do that. I'm just going to keep doing that until further notice. Yeah. What is your human design? My human design, which I just found out recently, is I'm a manifesting generator. I forget all the numbers. 
I was really down on it for a while. I was like, I don't need another personality test. And then I had a design session with Emma Dunwoody, who you probably know because Australia. And I was like, wow, there is something, there is something here that's gold. Yeah. And what's your star sign? I think, are you a Taurus? No, I'm, my son is in Gemini. I have um, Virgo moon, Libra rising. I have a lot of Virgo in my chart. My Venus is in Aries, which makes it not super easy to, well, I'm easy to commit to, but you got to hold on to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay. Let's talk about overburdened nervous systems, you know, because this is possibly one of the reasons why we want to just grow veggies and go off grid for a while. One of the impacts that you talk about from the past few years and maybe just from modern life in general is that so many of us have overburdened nervous systems. How does this show up and what can we do about it? There's three responses. This is psych textbook stuff. And then I I can go more to the metaphysics. The responses are fight, flight, some people would say freeze. And now there's this other response people are identifying called fawning, that in order to survive, I'm going to kind of kiss up, shrink myself, fawn over someone to stay safe in the situation. There's a parasympathetic nervous system and there's a sympathetic nervous system. And basically, if you were to see an anatomical drawing of it, it's like this wiring, this conduit system. It's as if you could see every vein in your body. And that is carrying signals to your brain to have you fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And I think this is a bit of a generalization, but I think we could all divide ourselves into one of two categories. You're either a fighter or you're a flighter, or you could say freeze with the flight. So I'm a fighter. I will scrap it out. I will overwork. I will push through. You know, there's this kind of tenacity to it. The freeze flight type, there's a shutdown. There's a heaviness that comes with it. There's, it's that not wanting to get out of bed. There's that kind of stuckness. And the fighters need things for the nervous system that are going to calm us down. And the freezers or, or the, I leave the situation folks, need to rev up, spicier food, more motion, exercise. I would say in generally for nervous systems, everybody needs to pay attention to their media diet. So just like we're looking at what we're ingesting physically, we're eating, you've got to look at the frequency and the messaging of what your mind is taking in. And then really, one I think one of the most tragic things of like contemporary life is really, I would just say like, disgusting entertainment. That is, so you go back to the term of the psyche that's in your basement, your basement self. It's not intelligent. It's not awake. It's not conscious, but it's listening to everything. So if we have messaging on repeat that I got heartbroken and I'm never going to find love again, or that I can live without you, or some kind of revenge stuff, or news, which is so manufactured and full of just so much lot, you know, it's just, it's just fear-mongering. The basement self is believing that. And the basement self is acting out all the time. And it's going to jack your nervous system. 
and you're going to feel like you are being attacked a lot or you are doomed a lot. I haven't actually watched the news in probably a decade on the television. I see it once in a while, just a couple of weeks ago, I was at the dentist and I was just like, wow, this is awful stuff. But, you know, I get what I get on social media. I've unfollowed a lot of that stuff. You know, even the stuff I consider to be closer to the truth and progressive and aware and all of that, a lot of which does border on what most people would call conspiracy. Nobody really knows what's going on. And I'm going to choose my timeline. I'm going to choose to live in a reality of more calmness and positivity. And my life hasn't fallen apart. I'm as informed as I need to be. I'm as activistic as I need to be. And uh, I sleep way better. Let's talk about rest, which is important to our nervous system. Rest is absolutely essential. And Nick and I recently wrote a book and launched a book called Time Magic. And it's all about reclaiming your time and reclaiming your life. And allowing yourself to rest is one of the most healing gifts we can give ourselves. Yet so many people struggle with rest. What do you say to the many, many people out there, especially women, who feel like they don't deserve rest until they've quote unquote earned it? or who connect their self-worth with their productivity? You need to nurture a relationship with your inner child. The inner child, lots of different perspectives on what this is, but I'll, I'll give you, this is my definition. The inner child, it's, it's a term for your unhealed stuff, your wounded self that you haven't healed yet. It's not you in this lifetime, when you were 10 years old, we go to therapy to deal with that stuff. This is what I do almost every day. I do this in the morning and I do this at night. I lie in bed. I put my right hand on my belly, just kind of thumb and navel. That's all like that sacral region, survival, creativity, willfulness, you know? I put my left hand on my heart and I say to my inner child, sometimes I'll just say baby D, or sometimes I'll say shadow self. How can I support you to come into balance? How can I support you to come into balance? Or even more simple, what do you need right now? What do you need today? And the answers are always amazingly, almost ridiculously simple. And they're all the things we know that are good for us that we don't make time to do. So my inner child will say, friends, hang out with people who laugh. I need a nap today. Clear water. Let's go to the beach. Oh, I love yoga. Every single one of those things is way too often the last thing on my list. One more email, one more task in a sauna, and then I'm too tired to go to the park. <laughs> or I don't want to I don't want to see my friends and have a laugh. I'm going to be my introvert self, you know. But that's it. And inner child work, you know, when I first got into it, it was like probably the third or fourth psychotherapist that I'd worked with who said shadow work, inner child work. And finally, I got, you know, prior to that, I was just like, are you kidding? I am a grown woman. I have a child of my own. This is, I'm a baller. This is ridiculous. And I got it. And it's incredibly moving. I have a meditation called Love and Radiance, where you go on this journey with your inner child and we work with different color frequencies in nature. 
And the response from the majority of people who do that is confusion and tears. And the message I always offer is like, you keep going. So many times the inner child shows up at just like, just a mess. This, you know, broken, battered little kid. The more you work with it, the imagery changes. And, you know, I often talk about, it used to be before I would get on stage, I would kind of get all hyper-motivational with myself and say, I'm going to like, I'm going to crush this. And I am queen taking stage, you know. I don't do that anymore. I find that that's just kind of this repression. It's just repressing any fear that I have, which is coming from my unhealed self. So now before anything that's important, where I feel any kind of nerves, I just talk to my inner child. It's just like having, how old is your daughter? She's just over two. It's not that different than dealing with your two-year-old. You know, if your two-year-old is rested and held and has had a potty break and you speak lovingly to them and she's calm, you can do the road trip. You can go get groceries. You can have some time. It's the same thing. If you're going to push yourself to do something that is like edgy, you just speak to that really tender, tender part of yourself. And that tender part of yourself is not going to act up with nervousness or uncontrollable anxiety or, you know, saying something you regret when you, when you got that big grown-up moment. Mm, beautiful. We'll link to that beautiful meditation that you mentioned in the show notes. And I've got an inner child healing meditation as well that I'll link to for everyone. It's important work. It's really important. So important. And one of the biggest personal challenges that I've had to face over the years was a very overactive inner critic or what I call your inner mean girl. And I love your take on stopping that self-critique and connecting with the alternative, which you call your divine value. Can you talk about our divine value? What is it? And how on earth do we connect with it if we're so used to beating ourselves up and feeling crap about ourselves? The inner mean girl is all about your self-worth. And this is another powerful analogy in terms of parenting a little, which is, you know, if our children or just a young person that we loved unconditionally came to us and said, do you love me? He would say, what a silly question. I adore you. The important part of that is, what a silly question. The divine is never measuring whether you are worthy of love. You're born worthy. It's the ego that asks that question because the ego mind is designed. It's always measuring. The mind is always measuring. I mean, the mind is like a beautiful thing. The mind is the source of creation. The heart can inform a heart-centered manifestation, but it's the mind that pulls it off. Left, right, yes, no, a little more of this, you know, it's measuring stuff. But the shadow side of that is, am I superior? in this situation? Am I inferior? Who's deserving and who's undeserving? And it's an absurd, ridiculous question. But (laughs) there is value that can be measured in a really holistic, beautiful way. I call that your divine value. We want to be better. We want to be more loving. We want to raise our vibration. We want to have more quality thoughts. We want to live lives of goodwill. 
that's divine value. And that's all driven by our free will. Like it's, you know, it's really up to us to um, make good in that way. Yeah. I love the question, you know, how can I be more loving? I think I heard you say that on one of your reels or something ages ago. How can I be more loving? And I often ask myself that question in any situation, you know, whether it's with my parents or a family member or, you know, even if I'm about to call my phone company, where you know, where you get put on hold for a very, very long time and you get passed on to five different people and it's not the most fun thing. Sometimes you're on there for an hour and a half. So for me, before I make that phone call, I'll say, how can I be so loving here? How can I make this person's day? How can I be so loving to the person at the post office or the bank? And, you know, that's really stuck with me. So I love that question because it does, it comes back to love. And I want to continue on with this idea of cultivating self-compassion. But in the context of parenting, you have a beautiful son. How are you teaching him to be loving to himself? What do you wish all parents knew about teaching self-love to our kids? Mm, That's a great question. It's a bit tricky, you know, because the identity is forming, the persona is forming, the ego is really taking hold, especially in those teenage years. There's so much comparison. And like all the self-help platitudes, he, he don't care. And I say, you know, who cares what they think? And there's, sometimes there's a shrug, but I know it all gets in. So I would say you have to stand in your philosophy and, and embody it and speak it to them. Some days are going to be preachy. I really had to learn with my son to see when he was flooded. Like when he said, I got it, mom. I really had to learn to pull back. That was a lesson for me because I just, there was one more thing I had to say and it was a loving thing and it was a useful thing and it was going to change his life that day. But just to be like, okay, dude, all right, you got it. Okay, you got this. I think you just have to be unconditional with them. And that's actually, a t- see, that's easier than said said than done, but it's, I love him whether he breaks curfew or not. I love him no matter what he wears. I love him no matter who he dates, all those things. And I voice that unconditionality, like no matter what. So you've got to back that up with action. Those cannot be platitudes. And how that worked in our household was really, I can count. I have to really think about it maybe four times in his whole life that he, there was any consequence for ill behavior. And, you know, context, this is a really socially responsible, mature child. So I won the lottery with that respect, but I think one of the reasons he's mature and socially responsible is because for us, I mean, different strokes and different children, there were never timeouts. There was never... I've never disciplined that kid. There were a few times where I was pissed off because there was a broken agreement. And I just turned to him and said, what do you think we should do here? And he's like, you know what? I'll I'll go without my uh, iPad for two weeks. I was like, good call. And I was like, yeah. And there are other times he's like, all right, how about uh, for one month, I'll come home at 10 o'clock. And, you know, children, we all need 
what are called boundaries, because these are the rails of immoral and moral, you know, neglected and cared for. And I've noticed this, especially with boys, they need their own challenges and their tests. And, you know, we used to throw kids into the wilderness and say, come back in three days. And now I think it has to be little things like, okay, what are you going to go without so that you become stronger? But yeah, unconditional, unconditional love. How old is he now? 19. Whoa. Yeah, whoa. Get ready. It happens. All the cliches are true. Overnight. Overnight. And that 15 is the evolutionary leap. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a stepson who is 17. 17. So yeah, I get it. And he is so divine. And I've loved watching him grow. And that's another whole thing. Being a step parent is like the ultimate surrender, the ultimate letting go and trusting. Like, holy moly. You got it. I would say my greatest spiritual test has been through step parenting. Mm-hmm. Me too. Me too. Like, it is my biggest spiritual assignment my biggest spiritual assignment because, oh, it's just so multi-layered, multifaceted. It's the biggest. And I thank him. You can't control either one of their parents, but you have to love them and you have to ingest all of their opinions. You have to be at ease with them and the dynamics that they have with two other people. It's it's a lot. <laughs> And the thing is, is like, as a female, you naturally want to mother them. Like, it's just innate within us to, you know, and my husband would say to me, babe, just be like the fun aunt. He's got a mother. Don't try and mother him. And I'm like, got it. I'm going to do that. And then I'd be like, okay, next time he comes, I'm like, fun aunt, fun aunt, fun aunt. And then I'm like, it just goes out the window because it's just so innate to want to mother. But you really are walking a fine line between this dynamic of two other parents, them, it is work. It is like big. It helped me translate a little bit of a lighter hand to my own son because I was like, okay, I'm just like, I'm going to hold, I'm holding space. And it's his life. It's his karma. Those are his soul chose those parents. And he's going to turn out just fine, you know? And I was like, oh, same with my kid. Maybe I could get off his ass philosophically over breakfast. And just be like, he's chosen his path too. Yeah. Absolutely. It has made me a better parent to my daughter. Like it truly has because I had all of this practice as well. I had about eight years of practice of step parenting before I became a parent. So there was so much growth and it forced me to really do a lot of inner child healing work. It catapulted that for me eight years ago, really like on steroids, because I was just smacked in the face with all of this stuff that I hadn't looked at. And it really forced me to look at it. And it's made me such a better parent. And I'm so proud of the mother that I am. I love the way that I parent. I love the way that I mother. I'm really proud of that. I love the way I show up for her. 
And I don't know, maybe it would have been different if I hadn't have had that practice or if I hadn't have done all of that work. Who knows? But it's all perfect. But it really is big work. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. I want to switch gears from the spiritual to the physical to talk about something that I am so passionate about. And I'm so intrigued to hear your experience. Can you tell us about your experience with heavy metals and mold toxicity? I love talking about health. I absolutely love it. Uh, It sounds like you have had to go on a really big roller coaster ride with all of these things. And we've had heavy metal stuff in our family. My husband had severe mold toxicity, which made him bedridden. He was hospitalized. So what happened and how are you supporting your healing? Can you share a little bit about that? Totally. Well, thank you for noticing. (laughs) And because this will be, I've been wanting to get around and doing a podcast about it because there needs to be more discussion and resources and uh, respiratory stuff has been my Achilles for quite some time. Like 30 years ago, I went to India. I got my first sinus infection. I haven't been right since. I don't think it was necessarily India. I think it's this predisposition to process grief for myself and for others. Grief is ruled by the lungs, Gemini, all those things. This is what I've come to do. I get it. About two years ago, I moved into a really sick building. It was moldy. And there's a few layers in this lesson. One was It was like this dump of a building, but it was really, we got this really cool apartment. It was like majorly downsizing my life. And we're like, we can make this work. And we did. It was, I turned it into this gorgeous oasis and we had this garden and everybody's like, this is a rad pad. This is so New York, right? But it was a lesson in no longer making things work. That was really what I learned in that. But I got very sick and I could not, get over lung infections. It'd be, it would hit me. I'd be down for three, four weeks. I get a little bit better. I'd be down again. I gained 20 pounds in about 18 months. My body was so inflamed from trying to process the mold. I wasn't sleeping through the night. Like the body just goes into survival mode. I will just make sure you digest and your heart is beating and the rest is going to take a backseat. So your metabolism is effed. The brain fog was crazy. I went to a five elements acupuncturist who's also one of my best friends. And she's like, you know, do you are not as sharp as you usually are? And I was like, well, you just, I was reaching for words. I couldn't remember things. It was just, everything was kind of a, just a delay, you know? And I went to a naturopath because that's the way I roll. So I, at this point in my life, I only work with functional medical doctors or naturopaths. I am done with just traditional allopathic medicines, too short-sighted. They have no education, very little education on um, nutrition, et cetera. We're, I'm complete there. My naturopath said, I said, I'm in a sick building. I need, I need some help. We got to work on my lungs. She said, let's test for mold. And while we're at it with all these other symptoms, let's test for heavy metals. And I thought that was a bit over the top. And by the way, another lesson in all of this is that healthcare is messed up because all of these so-called alternative 
treatments are very expensive and therefore not accessible to everybody. The majority of the population doesn't even have access to testing to find out what's wrong, let alone going on all of these protocols that cost, you know, I'm probably just on this round, $30,000 in to get myself right again. I tested very high for lead, very high for mercury. I've learned that lead and mercury, you know, on their own, they're not great, but together, extra bad. So that explained a lot of things. It explained the brain fog. And that I tested positive for three different kinds of mold, two that are in the environment. So one that is found in buildings often, one that's often found in rainy climates, which is where I live. I live in a rainforest essentially. And one that's often found in food. So I've since learned all the foods that are very heavy carriers of mold. Corn is one of the worst. Nuts and others that I can't remember now, but I totally cleaned up my diet. I went on a three and a half months protocol with particular supplements. It's an actual package you can get through most naturopaths. I think it's called Total Cell Detox. And it was not easy. It was really blinding headaches, a lot of nausea, the fatigue, like as the metals are getting kicked up, the symptoms become exacerbated. I would say I'm, it's been about five months of that discovery and cleanse process. I can remember everybody's name. The weight has started to come off without a huge shift. I don't have that aching knee joint inflammation. I have my body back. And I would say to everybody specifically with mold, there's lots of tests you can take to see if it's in your system. And there's lots of tests you can take, some which are fairly economical to see if mold is in your building. If you can afford to, you've got to get out of the moldy situation immediately. When I go back to the building where I used to live, it's just a few blocks away. I start to wheeze and the asthma gets kicked up within minutes of being there. And I've since learned that when you've, you've created a condition, the system is on hyper alert. This also applies to emotions and relationships. And so it will have an exaggerated response when you reach that kind of danger zone again. Mm, thank you for sharing. It is really important that we talk about this because so many people are living in moldy homes and a lot of people are like, oh, it's not that big a deal. It's okay. Just a bit of mold. I'm like, no, because my husband was bedridden from it. It made him so sick like you. It made him so sick. They renovated about 200-year-old building that was riddled with black mold. And he was renovating it himself. So he is like touching all of this mold, breathing this mold in. It made him so sick. So I get it. I know what it's like. I also know how long it takes to heal from it, how expensive it is. So all of my friends that are buying homes, that are renting, the first thing we'll ask each other was like, what was it like? Was it moldy? You know, this is one of the first questions. And it's just a non-negotiable now for us. Like we just can't live in that. It's your health, you know, and heavy metals, it's such an important thing. So I have done many heavy metal detoxing and tests over the years. I did a big heavy metal detox before I had my daughter. And yeah, because there's just, I had mercury in my system too. I'm just like, okay, I've got to get that out. 
it's really important because it affects everything. And especially with babies, if we don't get those medals out, we pass them on to our children. So it's really important. Yeah, there is a belief, you know, science-backed apparently, that it's six generations of passing down medals. And so sources of medals, there's a lot of medals in food. Women should lean in for this one. About five years ago, I had an accident with a fireplace and it burned my face quite badly. And, you know, I'm lucky to have a nose, like, so kind of first layer skin, whatever degree burns I had. And since then I've had melasma, which is where you go into the sun and you just turn into like, there's brown patches. So I'd been on this very expensive dermatologist recommended skin cream, which is basically had skin bleaching properties. I've since found out that a lot of skin bleaching stuff is really heavy in mercury. So I think, you know, five years of that contributed to it. You can have your water system tested in your cities. School districts in most cities, at least in Canada, are obligated to test the water supply every year and they have to make those results known. The city isn't, interestingly enough. But if there's lead or mercury in the school water, it's in your own taps in your home. So I have a Berkey filter. It's out of all the research I've done, it's the best water filter. Yeah, and I will test. This is like the sort of punctuation on this story. This protocol I've done, you know, it's complete, but I will test again in another three months and maybe redo part of it to just go in deeper because you really want to get the metals out of your brain and all of the data that's surfacing now between the connection between Alzheimer's, which is now being called type four diabetes and metal absorption in the brain. I mean, the, the connection is irrefutable. And I just wanted to add that the connection with metals and autism is very, very, very high as well. So we want to get it out of our system. A couple of other areas where metals are very prevalent are amalgam fillings, you know, so the mercury fillings and fish, tuna, swordfish, those sorts of things. There's, there's lots of metals there as well. Big fish. I think they're everywhere now, but if you're going to eat fish, don't eat the large fish. Yes. Yeah. And copper IUDs are leaching copper into people's systems. So, you know, there's so much. We just need to get this out of our system. Also, another thing that is really interesting is when you do do a heavy metal detox, it's really important to support the detox pathways through saunas, dry body brushing, and, you know, lymphatic drainage, because we're stirring up the toxins, the metals, we need to help excrete them. And infrared saunas are really good for that as well. So maybe if you are experiencing some things, go into a heavy metal test or a mold test and just see what's going on for you. It's really important because it can affect every area of your life. And a, a similarity between mold detoxing and metal detoxing and mold removal from our physical spaces they need to be done responsibly, professionally. So like, you know, your man in the mold himself and tearing walls and planks apart, that's how you get it. People hire a company to come in and excavate properly. They create airflow systems. The guys are in hazmat. And then with the metals detoxing, there's lots of cleanses out there that are food centric and that's cool, but you have to be careful to not overdo it. Because it can 
create more harm than help because you're really, I mean, you're letting this kind of bandit loose in your system and you need to be getting it out as quickly as the toxicity is surfacing. And that stuff hides in the crevices of your body. Yeah. Absolutely. One of my favorite quotes from your latest book is, the day of the guru is over. No one outside of you has power over you. No one ever. For those of us who have spent years or even decades worshiping at the altar of self-help, how can we reclaim agency over our healing and stop giving our power away? You've got to go on a diet from input. So, you know, I've had this joke for a while where, you know, I'd stand up at a gig and I'd say, okay, everybody, let's, we're going to act like we're at an AA meeting. I'd say, I'm Danielle. Everybody say, hi, Danielle. I'd say, it's been nine months since I had an astrology reading. (laughs) (laughs) So I pretty much went cold turkey, like I would say five, seven years ago. I'm just like, okay, I'm going to go it alone for a while. I'm going to go solo. So no more shamans over Zoom, no more Western Eastern astrology readings. (laughs) I did keep my psychotherapist for a while. And I just thought, you know, I want to make my own mistakes. And I actually felt sweaty about it. It was just like, oh, I made that commitment to myself. And it's like, and everything was okay. My intuition got stronger. Yeah, I was just able to hear the guidance of my own soul. Now, I have a counsel who helps me. I often turn to them, especially for business stuff. Like any good queen or any wise leader has people to refer to because it, you know, it does take a village. I look at those people now more as peers. You know, they're sitting sort of sitting on the stage with me as opposed to they know more than I do, and I know that I need to make the final call. Because, you know, I've had guidance from people who are really powerful healers who have really, you know, helped me through some dark stuff. I've had guidance from people who are gazillionaires and and actual gurus. And it didn't always work to follow their counsel, even though super wise and they love me, best interest at heart. I had to make the final call. Always, always. It's so important. So important. Over the years, what is something that you have changed your mind about? Oh, so many things. I would hope, my God. I used to think that the one in terms of romance was like this predestined situation. I do not believe that at all anymore. I think the one is the one because you say you are the one and I am committing to you, and you create this container and you go for it. I used to believe that giving advice was a form of love. I don't see it that way anymore. I think unsolicited advice is just the side of ego and manipulation. So I only give it when I'm asked. And I used to believe that I was a better person because I was working to save the world. And I've just recently, I'd say in the last couple of years, and I write about this in How to Be Loving, that, you know, what if that's just an ego script? 
I mean, I think anything that is telling us do this in order to be more worthy, valuable, acceptable, successful is probably our unhealed self keeping us in that loop of striving. So whether I make a difference in the world or not, I deserve to be here and I know that I am loved unconditionally by the creator and anything I do is just a bonus. Beautiful. Can you tell me what is the best purchase that you have made this past year, whether it's $10 or $10,000? What's made a big difference in your life? Best purchase? (laughs) This always got to do with shoes. That's (laughs) sure. I would say the funnest purchase I made (laughs) was for my birthday, I got myself a pack of gel colored pens. (laughs) And I went out of my way. It's like we were in Santa Fe, New Mexico. (laughs) And I was just like, oh, babe, the Office Depot is closing. I want to go get some colored pens. And I love them. It's just like, it's that simple. But let me think of something more serious. Yes, it's not a purchase, but it was a lifestyle shift. I'm going to give a little background. So I've mentioned a couple of times in our conversation about like letting go and simplifying and downsizing and all those things. And I've had a couple of people say to me, are you in financial trouble? I was like, what? No, no, no. I just wanted to get rid of stuff, you know, and simplify my lifestyle, which leads me to, and the sick building that I was living in, the moldy building. I currently live in this dream apartment. The beach is my front yard. The views are astounding. I sit at my desk and I just feel just the waves of healing coming off of mother ocean and I pay ridiculously high rent and that it is the best thing. It just, I actually feel like I'm getting a deal, but it's crazy. Plus, you know, Vancouver is a bonker city in terms of cost of living, but I just like, yeah, this is my life. I'm going for it. Hmm, I know. And your home is your sanctuary. It's where you spend so much time. It's so important. I've been in homes where it's been dark moldy and it's affected my mental health so much. So I get it. I get it. Okay. If you had a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world, besides your incredible books, which should absolutely be in the curriculum, what is one book you would choose? There is a compendium of Eckhart Tolle teachings. And I would put that in the schools because it's beautifully designed and it's bite-sized and the language is so accessible and it is all about how to be present and the payoff of being present. Yeah. With a side of love. Mm, Beautiful. I love that. I've got three final rapid fires for you. Are you ready? Yeah. What is one thing we can do today for our health? Box breathe. Four counts in, hold it. Four counts out, hold it. Do that for three rounds, change your day. Mm -hmm. Agree. What is one thing that we can do for more wealth in our life? So more abundance in all areas of our life. Be generous. Generous people have more to give. Absolutely. And final one. 
What is one thing we can do for more love in our life? This is layered, but I will make it concise. Imagine that your heart is as vast as the sky. It's the most powerful, quick, easy, simple visualization possible. It is a through line in Buddhist teaching to use the sky as a metaphor for our divine self. So when you're in the argument, when you're in the crankiness, when you're in the I'm wrong, you're right, right, wrong, whatever it is, you just say to yourself, my heart is as vast as the sky. You could actually see it. And I can almost guarantee you, you will start to think different thoughts in that moment and they will be more loving, more accommodating thoughts. Beautiful. I feel like I need to write that on a poster and stick it on my bathroom mirror. Such a beautiful reminder. Do it. (laughs) You give, share, serve, support so many people with all of your offerings. And I want to know what I and the listeners can do to give back and serve you today. You're such a beauty. And this has been such a great conversation. It's like you've really noticed through resonance. It's a true conversation. I'm so grateful. Listen to How to Be Loving. Yeah, it's on my site. It's like, I think it's $15, but the audio transmission, the uh, the concepts from your heart is vast to deep self-acceptance, you do that and we're all good. Yeah. Beautiful. I've read it, but I feel like I want to listen to it. Your voice is like honey. It's just so beautiful. Anytime I've listened to anything of yours, I'm like, yes. Ah, Danielle Laporte, goddess, queen. Thank you so much for being here, for sharing with us, for everything that you do and offer this world. You are one of a kind. Thank you so much. Marissa, everybody, thank you. I absolutely loved this conversation and got so much out of it and really feel called to just be even more loving toward myself and to others. And no matter what is going on in your life, you can bring softness and you can bring love to it, whatever you are experiencing. And I want to invite you to take that with you today. Whatever comes your way today, how can you bring more softness? How can you bring more love to that situation? That is your homework. And if you loved this conversation as much as I did, please subscribe to the show and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that all of my episodes will just pop up in your feed like magic so that you don't have to go searching for a new episode. Now, come and tell me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini what you got from this episode. I absolutely love connecting with you. I love hearing from you. So please come and share with me. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here. I do not take it lightly. I truly am so grateful that you are here. And I want to honor you for being here, doing the work, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest, and the happiest version of yourself, and for showing up today for you. You rock. Give yourself a pat on the back. Now, if there is someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, 
please be an angel and share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.